Well, we have been studying through the book of Acts in a series called We Shall Prevail. And today we come to Acts chapter 23 and beginning in, in verse 6. And uh, I want to talk to you today about God's providence in persecution. Now, Acts 23 is a, is a part of a, a long narrative that actually begins all the way back in chapter uh, 21. And it contains no real doctrinal propositions or practical exhortations. It simply kind of gives us uh, some critical events in the life of the Apostle Paul. Yet, it clearly demonstrates for us the marvel of God's providence and working in the life of one of his people. God's providence is, it, it's marvelous to behold. Uh, you say, well, well, what is providence? Somebody uh, told me after the service, I'm sure glad that you explained what providence was. I was trying to look it up on my phone to see what providence was. Well, don't worry, I'm going to tell you what providence is. Let's begin with a, with a definition, the word providence. Providence, it's interesting, it's a Roman word. That is, it comes to us from the Latin. It's a compound word. It's made up of pro, which means before, and the root word is video. Now, we all know what a video is. It's something that you you see, so it means to see. Well, when you put it together, it simply means to see before. And it's the idea that God sees everything beforehand and then he provides all that we need when we get to that moment, that time in our life. God is an incredible provider. Now, now that we have a, a definition, let, let's, let's, let's consider some theology because it's the theology that really makes this all, all work. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, in the beginning, God, God, don't let, don't, don't, you know, rush over that because that's so familiar, God, in the beginning, there was only God, God has always existed, God exists, he will always exist. He, he described himself as, I am. I am. I, I exist. I am. I, I have no beginning. I have no end. I, I was never young. I'll never be old. I, I don't grow. I don't become better. I simply am God in the beginning. And God can see all things and provide all that we need because he is eternal. That's what it means to be eternal, to simply exist. Apart from time or space or anything else, that's the way God exists. And in, it continues in Genesis 1-1 that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything that there is, physical and spiritual. As John tells us, um, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Uh, he is the creator of everything that exists. 
And all that God created operates by natural law. He created that world. And notice that there's a, it's, it's finite. It's limited. And, and within that natural world, everything works according to natural laws. Uh, the way light works, the way that gravity works. Everything is, works in a way that is understood and predictable. And so, but the good thing here, is the, great, the amazing thing here, is that God is supernatural. The word super means above or beyond. God is beyond the natural. God is separate from his creation. He's not a part of the creation. He's not in the sky. He's not in the trees. He's not in the grass. God is supernatural, separate from his creation. And uh, as being uh, separate from it, that's what we would refer to as eternal. Now, God also does something else. God has, when he created this world with natural laws, he's put us in a time-space continuum. In other words, we're, we, we experience time. We experience life through time. But when supernatural God reaches into the natural world and he violates natural law and does something that is contrary to that, that's called a miracle. When God parted the Red Sea, that violated natural law. That's a miracle. When Jesus walked on water, as we sang about this morning, that is a miracle. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, well, that is a miracle. It goes contrary to any physical law that we know, natural law. But when God supernaturally works within that created world, within that physical world, without violating natural law, without violating the volition of any individual, and brings about a series of circumstances, and brings about his will, that is called providence. And providence is, in some ways, is more amazing than a miracle. I mean, it's no, it's no problem for God's sake. Stop storming. He just do that. That's, that's no problem. But when he, but when God works in providence, He is working within a, a myriad of circumstances and working in the lives of of people with their own individual wills and and desires and actions. And and God is able to to work in all of that and still bring about His incredible will to be done. You see, uh, from our perspective, the, the time-space continuum, it looks like a video being played one frame at a time. You think about it. See, we're, we're born. That's the green. We live our lives one moment at a time, one day at a time, one week at a time, one month at a time, one year at a time, and all, until finally we fly away. We die. And, and right now, see, you're somewhere on that continuum. You're somewhere on that line. You don't, you know, you can know all the things that have happened in the past, but you don't know anything about what's happening in the future. You don't know what the next frame, frame will bring in this video. But when God, who is, now keep it, He is, He is outside. He is eternal. He is immutable. That means He is unchanging. 
When he looks into this time-space continuum, he, he looks into the created world, he sees everything all at once. Uh, you know when you uh, pull up a, a Netflix video and you hit the little uh, pause button and all those little frames come up? And, and some videos, you can see the whole video, what's going to happen in that video, all in these little frames. Well, when God looks at our lives, when he looks at creation... It's all played. He sees it all as one thing. He knows everything that's happening, going to happen. And he's already been there before that happens and provided everything that we as his people need. God is a God of providence. And think about Abraham. God says, Abraham, I want you to take your only son that you've waited all these years for, Isaac. I want you to take him to a mountain. And I want you to sacrifice him to me. And Isaac gets the wood, and, they, and he and Abraham take off. They go to the mountain. And when they get to the altar that Abraham has built, and he is about to take the life of his son, he stopped. There's a rustling in the brush. There's a bleeding. And Abraham looks over, and there is a ram with its horns caught in the thicket. And God says to Abraham, Abraham, I have provided the sacrifice for you. I knew what you were going to do. But when you got to that place, when you got, you didn't, you couldn't tell it until you got to that very moment. You couldn't know, you wouldn't know, but I have already provided for you. That lamb, that, that ram is a sacrifice. God looked through the ages before the foundation of the world, before that creation ever came into being. God looked into time and he saw us in our sin and he in his providence provided his son to come into the world, go to the cross, take upon himself our sin, pay the penalty for our sin, be raised from the dead, be glorified and so that he could offer to us eternal life. He did that. In his great providence. He's an amazing God. Providence is, is God, God's sovereign control over all things, circumstances, human beings, their own, even their own desires and wills, bringing it all together to accomplish his will. It, it, providence is God seeing everything that we need before we ever get there and providing in advance so that when we get there, it's available to us. Now, before we go on and, and look at what, how this applies to our passage today, I think we ought to just bow our heads and just thank God for providence. Our Father, we praise you that you are the God of all providence. We thank you that you are the creator, that you are eternal and immutable and unchanging. We thank you that you provide for us, your people, all that we need. We thank you for providing your son, Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, for his great sacrifice on our behalf. We thank you, God, for that. And we pray that today as we consider your word and we look at the example of the Apostle Paul, that you would open our eyes in a greater way to all that you do, a newer appreciation of who you are, and a greater commitment to be obedient to you and to walk with you, to trust you, 
in the midst of all that we do. So, Father, I know that in your providence, you've brought every person that's in this room. You brought them to this day, to this time, to this moment, to hear this message from your word, to meet a need you know is in the heart of every person. And I ask you, God, to help your people and to help those that have never trusted you to receive the gift that you want to give today in your providence. Lord, I pray for those that need salvation, that today they would trust you. I pray for those that need encouragement, today that they would receive your encouragement. For those that need conviction, God, that they would bring, that you would, they would receive your conviction. All that we need, God, give us today. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Paul has been attacked in the temple while attempting to show that he wasn't living his life contrary to Jewish tradition and and law. And this mob of Asian Jews, they've beaten him, and he has to be rescued from these Jewish people by an army of, of Roman soldiers. There's a man by the name of Claudius Lysias. He's the commander. He comes in. He, he pulls a Paul out of this mess, but he also has to arrest him because, you see, he has a responsibility to find out why there was a riot occurring in, in his, in his uh, command, and, and he also has a responsibility to protect Paul. So uh, in, in the process of learning that Paul was a Roman citizen, he said, yes, I definitely have to um, protect you. And so he calls together a group of the Jewish leaders called the Sanhedrin, he thinks that this will be a lot less violent and a lot less confusing, and he wants to get to the bottom of what the issue is, what's really happening here. And so Paul's experience in Jerusalem displays the marvel of God's providence in navigating through persecution. And, and it shows us that we can really trust God's marvelous providence to navigate through persecution in our own lives. Now, in the context of God's providence, there are three strategies for navigating through persecution. First is this, appeal to common convictions. Appeal to common convictions. Let's pick up in verse 6 here. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And he said this, there occurred, a dis- as he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes and Pharisee, of, of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Now, as we, we saw last week, Paul 
began his address to the Sanhedrin with a personal statement. Paul says, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up until this day. And, and, and Paul was, in essence, continuing his defense from the day before when he proclaimed his personal testimony. But his, his personal uh, account here is interrupted when the high priest orders Paul to be, to be punched in the mouth, literally. And, of course, Paul retaliates. And he begins to call the high priest basically a hypocrite. When Paul realizes that he is reviling the high priest, he corrects himself and acknowledges his wrong. It's wrong to speak evil of the rulers of, uh, of, of Israel. And so he corrects himself. But Paul's kind of at a, at a a point where he's been he's been working this personal angle, trying to explain, you know, that man nothing could account for for the change in my life, the the direction of my life, except for the fact that God has intervened personally in my life. It, that's the, that's the difference that it all makes. Why do, why have I gone to the Gentiles? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I preaching what I'm preaching? Well, it's because God has come to me. So I've always done what I believe God was showing me to do. But now this kind of personal approach is not effective. And so Paul turns now to a more doctrinal approach, and he appeals to the convictions that he and the Pharisees hold in common. And he says in verse 6, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. Now what Paul is saying is that the real issue here is my faith in the resurrection from the dead. That's what the real bottom line issue is. And this was something that the Sadducees and the Pharisees violently disagreed over. Paul knew that when he brought up this matter, this this essential doctrine, that it would cause conflict among that group and that they would be, you know, bantering back and forth And that's exactly what happened. In fact, it became so violent that the soldiers had to come in and rescue Paul for a second time and take him back to the barracks. It was an incredible thing. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were were the two dominant religious factions that made up the Sanhedrin. And, and, And they were at odds with each other over everything. I mean, socially, politically, Theologically, but it's the theological difference that's in view here. Uh, theologically, the Pharisees were the were the fundamentalists, and the Sadducees were the, were the liberals, if you want to put it in those terms. As Luke explains in verse eight, the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Now. You see the big difference here? Uh, the fundamentalists uh, are, are supernaturalists. They believe in, in angels and spirits and life after death and the resurrection. Uh, 
the, the rationalist, which would be a correspondent to the people our day, uh, they, 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 uh, you know, elevate the mind, the think, human thinking. That's the, the greatest thing in the universe. Uh, they didn't believe in any of that. Why? Well, the Pharisees accepted all the Old Testament, all books, what we call the Old Testament today. But the, the, the Sadducees, they only accepted the, the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And they said, well, when you look in the, in the first five books, you don't see any indication of life after death or, or uh, any angels or any of these kind of things. Now, that's not true. But that's what they, that's what they said. And so that was their, their position. So the, the the Pharisees, they're very legalistic. Man, the, the Sadducees, they had very light rules. Uh, they were very uh, liberal and licensed, took license with everything. They were kind of the right and the left in our thinking today. Now, their belief, the, the, the Pharisees, was much more compatible with Christianity than that of the Sadducees. F.F. F. Bruce says this. He says, a Sadducee could not become a Christian without abandoning the distinctive theological position of his party. That is, that there's a resurrection. <laughs> a Pharisee could become a Christian and remain a Pharisee in the early decades of Christianity at least. And when you look at Scripture, we find many Pharisees that become Christians. Nicodemus, Paul, and others according to Acts chapter 5. But there's no record in the Scripture of a Sadducee ever becoming a Christian. Now, some people ask this question, was, was Paul playing politics when he took this approach? Well, I don't think so. Because after his clash with the high priest, Paul realized he's never going to get a fair hearing here in this place. They're never going to take his words at face value. If the trial had continued, Paul would have ended up being taken out and stoned. And, and that's really the truth of the matter. But, but, but more important, most important here, Paul was absolutely right when he said the real issue is the resurrection of the dead. Not, not, the, not resurrection in general, but specifically the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because what Paul is saying is that my life has been changed because I personally have had an experience with the resurrected Christ. He has intervened in my life. Uh, he has spoken to me. He has changed the course of my life. I know that he is the Lord and I am his witness. And I must do what he tells me to do. That's, that's his point. And there's a sense in which you, you see this is a continuation of Paul's initial argument about the, the resurrection. The witness is always on the resurrection in the book of Acts. The resurrection is the heart of Christianity. Jesus Christ has raised from the dead and he is alive. That's how we know that who, that's who he is. As Paul told the Romans, uh, he says he was, raised, he was raised from the dead with power. That's how we know he's the son of God. And so 
there's no doubt that Paul was looking, see, for the opportunity to talk about the resurrection. He's trying to open the door so he can talk about the resurrection. That's what he always did. Everywhere he went in every synagogue across the Roman Empire, he went into a synagogue and he opened the door so that he could talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was his message. Do you know what our message is? Our message is that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and he's the only hope of salvation. Paul appealed to the common belief that he held with the, with the Pharisees. And note that Paul never endorsed the Pharisees. He only proclaimed the hope, it says, and resurrection of the dead. Now listen, I think it's important here to point out that it's legitimate to use, uh, to use those who, who have a similar belief system or, or convictions that we have. It's legitimate for us to to to, uh, to uh, use those convictions when we are trying to open the door to speak of the gospel. Uh, for example, we're we're I mean we're miles apart. I mean, obviously, we're we're miles apart from the Catholic Church and what they believe about salvation. We believe that salvation is only through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. We don't believe that you you can it's by works. Oh, we're miles apart from the Mormon church. I mean, they have a whole different uh, mode of salvation that we do. But you know what? We do have some things in common with them. The Catholic church is pro-life. They stand against abortion. They stand against same-sex marriage. The same was true with the, with the Mormon church. Now listen, we can't worship with them. We can't worship with them. You know what? But we can vote with them. And while you, you see these things, while cultural Christianity is waning in our nation and persecution is increasing, there are still many common convictions that people hold in our world that we can use to open the door to talk about the resurrection. I think one of the great uh, struggles that we have, one of the things we miss so often when we're trying to talk to people and trying to present the gospel is that we get off on the wrong things. We start talking about things like, you know, same-sex marriage or, or abortion rather than talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the real issue. That's the real matter. And And we miss it when we do that. And listen, if you are going to appeal to your convictions, you better really have those convictions. The film Walk the Line is a biographical story of uh, country music legend Johnny Cash. This is no way an endorsement of that movie. But in early scenes, Based on, it's based on um, Johnny's first audition for a music uh, contract, for a recording contract. And he's in a, um, an auditorium with two members of his band, and uh, they're there with a, a music executive by the name of Sam Phillips. And the song that they're recording is a, is a, is a common gospel tune uh, that he and his band, they, they perform it. It's very 
flat. It's with no emotion. And they just barely get into it when Sam Phillips interrupts them. And he says, he says um, guys, I'm sorry. Uh, I hate to interrupt. He said, but um, uh, do you guys got something else you can play? And after an awkward pause and they're looking around at each other, he said, I'm sorry, I can't market gospel no more. I don't record material that doesn't sell, Mr. Cash. And gospel like that doesn't sell. And Johnny asked, well, what was it the gospel or is it the way I sing it? And Philip says, well, it was both. And he said, well, what's wrong with the way I sing? And Philip's response was, well, I don't believe you. And, and, and John, he's, he's offended. He says, uh, you saying I don't believe in God? And his friends, they start trying to pull him back. But he says, no, wait a minute. I, I, I want to understand. Is he, I mean, we come down here, we play for a minute, and then he tells me I don't believe in God? You know exactly what I mean, Phillips says. We've already heard that song a hundred times just like that, just like you sang it. Well, you didn't let us bring it home, Johnny says. Bring, bring it home? You want to bring it home? Well, let's bring it home. If you was hit by a truck and you were lying out in that gutter dying and you had time to sing one song, one song people would remember you before you were dirt, one song that would let God know how you felt about your time here on earth, one song that would sum you up, you telling me that's the song you'd sing? That same Jimmy Davis tune we hear on the radio all day, all about your peace within, how it's real, how you're going to shout it? Or would you sing something different, something real, something you felt? Because I'm telling you right now, that's the kind of song people want to hear. That's the kind of song that truly saves people. I kind of heard a little bit of that this morning. We were singing, I'll fly away. <laughs> exactly like you meant that. Let me ask you, what kind of convictions do you really have about the gospel? about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do people believe you when you say it? Or are you just singing the same old tune that you hear at church? Lifeless, flat. What do you really believe? Do you really have those convictions? If you have those kind of convictions, friends, if you talk about the resurrection with those convictions, that's the kind of, that's the kind of message that really saves people, that God uses to save people. Here, here's a, a second strategy. Receive Christ's comfort. Let, let that soak in for a moment. Receive Christ's comfort. Look at verse 11. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. 
Now, I don't think there's ever been anybody that is more involved in carrying out the Great Commission than the Apostle Paul. And do you remember the promise that Jesus made when he gave the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28? He says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, right? He made that promise. And uh, Jesus fulfilled that promise in Paul's life here in a, in a very literal way. And that he came to him, stood before him in a physical presence, and spoke to him audibly. And he says, take courage. I love that. Now, let's, let's stop right there for a moment because I know what happens. I know what happens. That seems like something that happened way back there. That didn't sound like something that happens today. But listen, that promise is still good for you and me today. Jesus says, I will be with you. What? Always. Always. He is with us when we are seeking to carry out the Great Commission. His providence is at work on our behalf. It's no, it's no coincidence that you encounter the people that you encounter. He's at work. And, and listen, he wants us to receive his comfort. He wants us to receive his courage. The first words he says are, take courage. Courage is available to those who will receive it. And Jesus spoke those words often in his own ministry on the earth. He spoke it to the man who was a paralytic. He spoke it to the woman who was having the issue with blood. He spoke it to the disciples when they were out on the sea in the storm. He spoke it to them in the, in the upper room just before the cross. He says, take courage. Take courage. Receive it. These are words that, 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 that mean that I am with you and I will meet all your needs. And then he gives them a commendation. He wants us to receive his commendation. Verse 11, you have solemnly testified to my cause at Jerusalem. Jesus commended Paul for his witness that he had given, even though it had not been received. I mean, when you look at his life, it looks like that. When time he came to Jerusalem, everything just fell apart. Everything was a failure. But you know what Jesus says? Paul, you did good. You gave, you gave a, a witness for me, and I'm pleased. Friends, that's what matters. You and I live in a world where it's hard to talk to people about Jesus, and, and we don't see people getting saved in droves like we used to. But I'm telling you what, when we, when we give our testimony for Jesus, when we talk to people about the, the gospel, Jesus says, hey, I'm pleased. And that's all that really matters. I'm pleased. He wants you to receive his commendation. He wants you to receive his confidence. You know, back in chapter 20 and verse 22, Paul was going to go to Jerusalem, and and he starts saying, well, I don't know what's going to happen to me. I mean, this could be the end. Uh, All I know is that the Holy Spirit just keeps testifying uh, solemnly that in every city there are bonds and affliction await me. I don't know what's going to happen. Paul was, he, he didn't see the next frame. But, when, when the Lord shows up, he says, Paul, you've been faithful to me in Jerusalem, and I'm going to send you to Rome. And all of a sudden, that became a great encouragement because Paul realized, this is not it. 
God's got more for me to do. This is not the end. God's got more for me to do. You know, it's kind of, I feel like that's in my own life right now. Somehow God's got more for me to do. And God's got more for you to do. That's why you're here. He's sovereign over it all. And in all this, the Lord was fulfilling his perfect plan to get his servant to Rome. Living in a culture that's so hostile that it openly oppresses the righteous is difficult. But Jesus wants us to receive his comfort and know that his providence is at work for us. There's a, there's a final strategy here, and it's this. Rest in providential protection. Isn't that a wonderful word? Rest. Rest in my providential protection. Uh, Paul continues to face difficult circumstances. Everything's not great. You know, he's not, oh, praise the Lord. Man, I, I've got a great house and a great car, and boy, God's blessing me. No, he's not saying any of that stuff. Paul has been falsely accused. He's been beaten, arrested, and now he's being plotted against. And yet God is going to deliver him so he can go to Rome. Not by a, a supernatural miracle, but God is going to deliver him by his providence. And God's providence, remember, is his sovereign control over, over ordering all natural circumstances and, and wills to accomplish his purpose. And so we see a, a conspiracy is devised against him. Conspir- you may not know this, but conspiracies are being devised against the gospel every single day in our country. Look at verse 12. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were, there were more than 40 who formed this plot. And they came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. These 40 men take an oath, blood oath. It shows how serious they were about their intentions. And the Greek there literally read, reads, they anathematize themselves. Anathematize, it means to be devoted to destruction. In other words, they're saying, we, may we be devoted to destruction. May God destroy us if we don't fulfill our vow. That's pretty strong language, right? It's when you say, may God strike me dead. I don't do what I say I'm going to do. Uh, this was a very serious thing. And, and they knew that they couldn't depend upon the Romans to take Paul out because there was no capital offense. And, and they didn't want Paul coming before them again in, a, in making a speech lest he influence some people toward the truth, toward the gospel. 
So they said, we're going to take things in our own hands. We're, we're, we're going to take him out. And we're going to get these 40 guys together in order to, to, to maximize our chances of getting him. We're going to ask that he be brought down to the, uh, to the council when they'll have a minimal number of soldiers. And that'll be the prime time for us to attack and take him out. And so they go to the council. They go literally to the chief priests. And if you know anything about the Sanhedrin, they went to the Sadducees, the ones who had not defended Paul over the resurrection, the ones they thought they could get the, the, the most help from. And they said, you ask for them. And while we bring them down, they won't even get there. You won't, it, won't, it won't involve you. You'll be safe. We're going to take them out before they ever get near the place. So the conspirators assume that the Sanhedrin's leadership is going to take part in a murder plot. Does this sound familiar to you? Talk about the swamp. Some things never change, right? But then the, the conspiracy is discovered. In God's providence, this conspiracy is discovered. It says in verse 16, but the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. And he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, that is to, to Lysias, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and stepping aside, began to inquire of him privately. What is it that you have to report to me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council. And as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him, so do not listen to them, for more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. Now, we don't know anything about Paul's sister or his nephew other than what is written right here. If you look at Philippians chapter 3, it would appear that Paul actually lost all of his family when he became a believer. All of them abandoned him. But... We don't know if it's possible that later some of these people were converted. We don't know. It seems kind of unlikely that they would actually hear about the whole plot, the whole conspiracy, if they were considered Christians like Paul. And somehow God used a lost little boy to hear the entire conspiracy, to be able to take it to Claudius Lysias and articulate it perfectly to him, to be able to get past the guards, to get led to Claudius Lysias, and to be able to tell him everything. I mean, there's a lot of factors there. There's a lot of circumstances there. But God in his providence allows the, the conspiracy to be discovered myriads upon myriads of circumstances and personalities involved in all of these situations. It's amazing what God can do. Now, Paul doesn't want, I mean, or Claudius doesn't want anybody to know about that he knows about the plot because he's afraid, well, if they know I know, they'll devise just a different plot. 
then the, the conspiracy is derailed. Look at verse 23. And he called to him two of the centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. And they, they were also to provide mounts to Paul on, to, to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote, having a letter, this form, so he writes a letter to um, Felix. And it's Claudius, Lysias, to the most excellent governor, Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. He didn't find out that he was a Roman until after he was about to scourge him. But that's okay. We'll let him make himself sound good in this letter. Uh, we probably all would have done the same thing. And he says, um, and, and wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council, and I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. True. When I was informed that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. And then it, go, it continues. We finish up this, this chapter in verse 31. So, so the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to uh, Antipatris. But the, the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. And when these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when he had read it, he asked him from what province he was. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Now, Claudius has a plan, plan that's, uh, that's simple and wise. He knows that he has to get Paul out of, the, out of Jerusalem because there's going to be one murderous plot after another if he doesn't. He also knows that it's his, if, if Paul did get killed, it's going to be on him. It's going to be his responsibility. He also knows that, man, he's got to have some kind of a charge or he's going to be guilty of holding a Roman citizen without a charge. And so he comes up with a plan, hey, I'll send him to Felix. If that gets him out of Rome or out of Jerusalem, and, and, and that also puts the charge on him. So he could solve both problems by doing that. Now, if Paul had been a private citizen heading to Caesarea, which is where he would have headed to head off to Rome because that's where God wants him to go. You know, Paul would have been an easy p- target for any conspirators. He could have just got knocked off like that. Instead, what does God do? God has him escorted by 470 soldiers. I mean, that's half the whole Roman garrison in Jerusalem. But they care, they escort him up there. He, Paul didn't even have to walk. They give him a horse to ride on. Paul's not used to that. I get to ride a horse up there. When he gets there, well, they're nice to him. And you know where he gets to stay? He gets to stay in the praetorium. You know what that was? That's the governor's palace. He gets first class accommodations on his way to Rome. They all want to kill him, but God has different plans.
So here, here they go. They leave at night. They get half, about halfway to this little town. Uh, they've, they've figured the, the worst part's over. And so they say, well, uh, we'll send the guys back to Jerusalem just to make sure that everything's okay there. Takes him on to Caesarea. He meets Felix. And Felix says, hey, man, all right, we're going to have a trial. But until then, uh, make yourself at home in the palace. Pretty good. All of this displays the marvel of God's providence in navigating Paul through persecution. Would you, would you agree? Now, let me ask you an important question. What's the purpose of God's providence in doing what he does? What's, what's, the, what's the purpose? What's the bottom line? God's purpose is that we, as the world, would know who he really is. And he would be glorified in that. That the world would know the truth about what God has done before the foundation of the world. That he provided his son for them. That God saw our need. And he has already provided for our need. When you come today, when you come to this place today, God has already provided for everything, everything that you need for salvation. Because in Jesus Christ, everything has been already been done. He has already paid the penalty for your sin. He's already taken upon himself your unrighteousness. He's already endured it all. And he's not only has he done that, but he has, he has made a way for you to live because he rose from the dead. He's alive. He's, he lives. And he says you can have life that is eternal. You can have my life. You can have my kind of life, eternal life, a life that never changes. But you can go into the category of eternal life. As God is eternal, to live with him forever, unchanging in glory and majesty. And God has done that through his son, Jesus Christ. And God is in his providence. Worked through the circumstances. Even you used your own will to bring you here today to walk into this room. And God in his providence is speaking to you about the most important thing in the entire universe. Your life, eternal life. God in his providence seeks your good. It brings him glory, but he seeks your good. And you're here today to hear it. George Mueller was an extraordinary servant of God. He was born in the 1800s. He, um, he lived most of that century. He worked with men like Charles Spurgeon and D.L. Moody. He was an inspiration to the great missionary, Hudson Taylor. And he pastored one church in England for 66 years. When he was 28 years old, he founded the Scripture Knowledge Institute, 
which was designed to uh, distribute Bibles and books and tracts and to develop uh, uh, Bible uh, schools or Bible teaching uh, units. Uh, It was designed to do that and orphanages. Of, Of all the things that Mueller is famous for, he's most famous for his work with orphanages. In his lifetime, he, he cared for over 10,000 orphans. Now, this is back in the 1800s. 10,000 orphans. He, he built five orphan houses, houses housing 2,000 orphans. This was an incredible thing in this time. And uh, the amazing part about George Mueller was that he never asked any person for a single farthing. Not one dime did he ever ask anyone for in doing his work. He simply prayed and said, God, you are the God of providence. You know everything we need, and I trust you to meet it when we need it. And in his, the course of his life, George Mueller saw over $7 million come in for houses. Now, that may not sound like much today, but remember, 1800s. This is an incredible amount of money that came in for the building and for the maintaining of these orphanages. And George Mueller said there's a purpose. What was his purpose? He said, my purpose is that God may be glorified, and that people may know that they can truly trust God. And I have a heart for the spiritual well-being for these children and for the physical well-being of these children. And I trust that God will be glorified in it. God in his providence provides all that we need. And it has that purpose of, of when he shows us his providence, his, his purpose is, is that we would trust in it. Trust in his providence. Trust in his providence in Christ, first of all, and then trust in his providence as we become those who carry out the Great Commission. Do you understand that God wants the gospel to be known? That's the purpose. He wants the resurrection to be proclaimed. But the enemy does not want the gospel to be proclaimed. That is the reason for persecution. Persecution is an attempt to stop the gospel from being proclaimed. But God overrules persecution and allows that the gospel be proclaimed because he's a great God who loves. Let's pray.